If you're new with us, we've been in the, we started a new series through just the first chapter of Romans. And so this morning we're going to launch in, we did an overview sermon last week, and you can listen to that on our website. This morning we're going to go through Romans 1, 1 through 7. But so as you're turning there, let me just share a, a, a fantastic story. In his book, uh, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, author Mark Dever shares a story of John Harper, who was born in a Christian home in Glasgow, Scotland in 1872. When he was about 14 years old, he became a Christian himself, and from that time on, he began to tell others about Jesus Christ. At 17 years of age, he began to preach, going down the streets of his village and and pouring out his soul in passionate pleading for men to be reconciled to God. After five or six years of of toiling in the streets, corners and preaching the gospel and working the mill during the day, Harper was taken in by Reverend E. A. Carter, a Baptist pioneer mission in London. This set Harper free to devote his full time and energy to the work and his evangelism that he so loved. Soon in September 1896, Harper started his own church, and this church would begin with just 25 members, but by the time he was done in 13 years, he had 500 members. During that time, he both married and then was a widow. Before he lost his wife, God blessed Harper and his wife with a beautiful little girl named Nana. Harper's life was also an eventful one. He almost drowned several times. He was, when he was two and a half years of age, he fell into a well, but was then brought up and resuscitated by his mom. At the age of 26, he was swept out to sea by reverse current and barely survived. At the age of 32, he faced death on a leaking ship in the Mediterranean. If anything, these brushes with death, death simply seemed to confirm for John Harper his zeal to share the gospel which marked out the rest of his life. And while pastoring his church in London, Harper continued his fervent and faithful evangelism. In fact, he was such a zealous evangelist that the Moody Church in Chicago asked him to come over to America for a series of meetings, and he did, and it went very well. A number of years later, Moody Church asked him again to come back and share in their church. And so it was that that Harper boarded a ship one day with a second-class ticket from Southampton, England, for the voyage to America. Harper's wife had died just a few years before, and he then had his child, Nana, who was six years old, with him. And what happened after this, we know mainly from two sources. One is Nana, who died in 1986 at the age of 80. She remembered being woken up by her father a few nights into the journey. It was about midnight, and he said that a ship had struck an iceberg. Harper told Nana that another ship was just there, about there, to rescue them. But as a precaution, he was going to put her on the lifeboat along with an older cousin who had also accompanied them. As for Harper, he would wait for another ship. The rest of the story is is very well known. Little Nan and her cousin were saved, but the ship that they were on was the Titanic. The only way we know what happened to John Harper was because in a prayer meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, many many months later, a young Scotsman stood up with tears with an extraordinary story of how he was converted. He explained that he had been on the Titanic the night that it struck the iceberg and that he abandoned ship as with everyone else and had clung to a piece of floating debris and freezing water. And suddenly, the wave brought a man near him and introduced himself as John Harper. And he too was holding a piece of wreckage and he called out, man, are you saved? And he says, no, I'm not. And he shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
And then the wave took Harper away. A little later, he washed back beside the man again and says, are you saved now? And the man answered, no. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then losing hold of the wood, Harper sank. The man continues and says, there alone in the night, two miles of water beneath him, I trusted Christ. He was my savior, and I am John Harper's last convert. See, I share that because John Harper had one goal for his life, to serve the Lord until his very last breath preaching the gospel. It seems like preaching and and sharing the gospel has fallen on hard times as of late. It seems we're more willing to preach our preferences. We're more willing to preach our, our comforts and what we deserve than we are to preach Christ. But as we learn in the book of Romans, Paul was set out to give over his life as a drink offering unto the Lord. He was anxious to preach the gospel, this glorious gospel, uh, raised and ascended Lord to all who would come and all who would listen. And Paul wanted every facet of the believer's life to be soaked in the gospel so that their days would reflect the realities of the good news that announces and gives the believer life and hope and peace and joy and faith and obedience and righteousness and love and on and on. Paul does this through the preaching of the gospel. He was a servant of God with all of his life. So here's the main idea. If you're taking notes, here's the main thrust for this morning's sermon. Paul was an obedient Christian who saw his life as a conduit of the gospel for the world. A conduit rather than a cul-de-sac. He wanted the gospel to come through him and to go out to others. Paul was an obedient Christian, and there's three points as you walk through. A servant set apart for the gospel in Rome and all the world. Romans 1 is where we're at, so if you haven't turned, turn there. If you're new and you, haven't, you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seats. We'd love for you to, to take that as a gift. If you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, it's on page 883, Romans 1. The, the large numbers is the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to look at Romans 1, 1 through 7 this morning, and follow with me as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we ask that you would help us to see clearly your servant Paul and his example of his life set apart in service for you for the sake of the gospel in Rome and throughout the world. And may we apply that, what we learned this morning, to our own lives. For we ask this all in Christ's name, amen.
Number one, a servant set apart. In the Greek text, as I said last Sunday, the word for servant here is doulos, which is translated better as slave or bondservant. A servant, though, is in an ancient world, was a hired employee, one who could come and go at their own will, who could resign and find another job if they desired. But a doulos was a slave owned by a master or lord. And frequently we read in the New Testament that the word for doulos is, is almost always compared to Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. As Christians, we are, we are slaves to him. He owns us. Christians belong to Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our master. And Paul was, was a doulos of Christ, a servant, to, a slave of him. And he was called to be an apostle, he says. This was not a job that Paul was hoping for or even applied for. In fact, he had a different job when God regenerated and converted him right? Do you know the story of how Paul came to be? First, his name wasn't Paul. It was Saul. I'll give you a short version. He he was Saul from birth. He was trained as a Pharisee. He he was taught at the best school. He was ready to to go, and he was going to keep the the Jewish faith. He had a mission for his life. He was going to snuff out all of these Christians. Friends, Saul was a terrorist, You need to understand that. You think of people today that are terrorists. That was Saul. Plain and simple. He was an extremist. He was a fanatic. He was on a radical mission to wipe out all Christians. Not just put them away in prison. No, he wanted them dead. Gone. That was his life mission. He he went to that end, and we read in Acts 7. And by his own admission... His goal in life was to destroy the church and all those that were for the church. See, the first time you hear about Saul is at a mob-style murder of Stephen. He gives approval, hearty approval, for Stephen to be stoned to death. This, this man is the author of Romans. I mean, it should astound you to the power of the gospel. The author of Romans is here because the Lord saved him. God converted him as he's going on the road to Damascus with papers in hand to go arrest and kill more Christians. Jesus stops him and Jesus saves him. And this is one of the most amazing things in our, in, in our history, that, that God chose a man as an apostle who was one of his chief enemies, he chose a man who was, who was not with him when he walked on earth, a man who was not one of the 12, a man who didn't hear his teaching, who received, saw his miracles, who was not there during the crucifixion. He was not there when Christ came in the upper room after the resurrection. He was a, a total outsider and blasphemer and persecutor and terrorist trying to exterminate Christianity, and God steps in, and God saves him, and he calls him to be an apostle. To, to go forth. And friends, that's amazing. It's unheard of in our world. And the text says called. I'm called to be apostle. I believe a better word is summoned. A summons is denoting some, someone whose presence or participation has been officially requested. But it's even more than that. A summons is something that refusal is not really an option. 
So let me ask, have you ever received, by raise of hands, a jury summons? You're all lucky. I have, I'm 44 and I've never been picked. I mean, I'm ready. I, I, have, I know what I'm going to wear. I know what I'm going to say. I want to be picked. My wife has been so, chosen four times since we've been married. Four! Each time she, she was out of it. Either we were out of the country or she was pregnant. So she never served. I'm zero. And I'm, I'm ready to go. I think I have the perfect job to go and sit there and understand humans and justice. Just, if you know anyone, select me. I want to be on a jury. I want to be summons. But if you know when that summons come, you can't just say, eh, I'm not going to answer it. Yeah, no, you don't do that, right? You can't. You can't throw it away. They're going to keep going after you, and then you're going to be held in some serious thing. I don't know, contempt? I don't know. But they're going to get you. They're going to want a response. It's a summons. It's a come, but you don't really have a choice. That is what Paul is talking about here. He's summoned to serve in this way. You can't just say, well, uh, yeah, no, not, not for me. No, it necessitates a response. Paul is summoned to go and preach the gospel. This was God's call upon his life, and there was no backing out of it, no excuses. He was called as an apostle. An apostle was an envoy, people who someone or some group has sent on a specific mission, and Paul was sent on this mission. Paul firmly believed that his authority as an apostle was similar to that of the prophets of old, but even so, he was even more superior because he now was proclaiming the fulfillment of what those other prophets had talked about in the Old Testament. And his, his, his apostolic authority was on the same level of the pillars of leadership. He says in Galatians 2.9, Paul writes about his authority, and he has to establish this for, for the Roman Christians to understand, to receive this. But in Galatians 2.9, he talks about this authority. He says, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars perceived grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles. So he, he, he understands he has a mission as an apostle to go. He received his authority because he received his gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And he's set apart now to go and to preach the gospel of God. That part, participle set apart is in the perfect tense, emphasizing that God's action of setting Paul apart continues to shape who he is. And the word means to be separated, to be, to be moved away, to be moved apart from, from something else to, to something else. And what caused Paul to write this letter, to give over his life essentially for the service of God, it was the gospel. To Paul, this gospel was so great that he is willing to separate himself from anything the world offers, from wealth or health or acclaim or friends or even safety, in order to be faithful to the calling that God has given to him in his life. And Paul writes this letter to tell the saints in Rome the gospel. He wants them to know Jesus more than they know about him. So how would Paul answer the question, who are you? I asked this last week. Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's who I am. And so I asked this last week, and you've had a week to think about this, friends. How would you answer that question? Who are you? What are you called to? 
What would it look like if we as a church saw ourselves as God-owned people called and sent with the task of sharing and preaching the gospel to our coworkers and our friends and for some of you, your spouses and your family members and your kids not on a yearly basis when we have just one of a, a message that could, kind of stirs us up to go be evangelists, but no, on a daily basis. We think about the gospel, we meditate on the gospel, we rehearse the gospel, and we want to share the gospel for those that we come in contact with. What would happen to our church if that was true of us? What if we lived the way John Harper lived? Living to share the gospel with all fervor and dedication up until the very last breath. See, this was the pattern for Paul as well. He was for the gospel. That's point number two, for the gospel. Paul was a servant of God set apart for what? For the gospel. Look at the end of verse one. It says, for the gospel, and then verse two, which was promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace. This gospel that Paul preaches is both from God and about God. And it centers primarily on Jesus. It's about a person, not a concept. It's about him and it's not about us. And one of the greatest errors we can make as humans is to place ourselves at the heart of the gospel that we preach. The gospel is not primarily about us. See, to Paul, God was the beginning, and he was the end, and he was the all in all. He was the gospel. And Paul had nothing apart from him. And so it's a good way to test our own profession of faith is just to ask some questions. Is, is Jesus Christ the, in the forefront of our lives? Is he the center of our lives? Or is something or someone else holding that position in our lives? Is Jesus Christ in the, in the forefront of our minds and our hearts and our conversations? And if so, the gospel will, will flow much easily. It will clearly, it will just go. It will come out. We also learn that this gospel is from God, it's, and it's not new. It was promised beforehand. It's about Jesus, and it demands the obedience of faith, and it applies to everyone in the world. He talks about these things. We'll unpack this here. And, and Paul understood that this, this gospel is happy news that God had come to rescue his people from a disastrous situation in which sin had plunged them into. The gospel, that word, literally means good news. You can use them interchangeably, gospel or good news. Better yet, it really should mean world-changing news. World-changing news. You see, in the first century, if a far-off battlefield and an emperor won a great victory, which brought peace and established authority throughout the land, he would send heralds to go and declare victory. And that's what Paul is. Paul is a herald. This is what every Christian is. This is what I am this morning, a herald of good news. See, the gospel is an announcement. It's a declaration that God has defeated sin. Amen. 
The gospel is never advice to be followed. Never advice to be followed. It's good news about what God has already done. It's not do, it's done. The gospel is not an exhortation for men to try and go and work and save themselves. The gospel is this good news of what Christ has done for us and has given us the way of salvation. And so let me ask you, friends, is the gospel good news to you? Is it the best news that you've ever heard? I mean, some of you have heard good news, right? When, when someone's pregnant and they're about to have a baby, that's good news. Is the gospel even better than that? Is it the best news you've ever heard, or is it not? You know, there's really not a third choice there. You're either overjoyed and excited when the gospel is preached, or you're not. I believe there's some reasons why we don't rejoice. First, I think the gospel might not be the greatest news in the world to us because we have an inadequate sense of our sin. We don't understand our sin. You haven't fully grasped just how sinful you are. I mean, you know you're not perfect, but you're not as bad as that guy. You know, you pay your taxes, you're not an awful drunk, you love your family, you try to be a decent person in this world. And so the gospel isn't really good news to you because you don't realize how utterly sinful you are to the core. You've never been convinced that you should be desperate enough to go for God for help. This is probably the greatest reason people do not rejoice in the Lord always. It's because they have convinced themselves that they're really not that bad. I'm just not that bad. This is why it's easy to forget the gospel so frequently during the week, Christians, because life for you maybe isn't really that bad. And you've picked up the Christian lingo, things at work are going fine, your family's seeing fine, you're, you're paying all your bills. Life is just going, you're on cruise control. And so subtly you begin to think, I- I'm really not that bad. In fact, over the years you've learned Christian behavior, so you're, you're now acting like a Christian. You know, you got the persona on. You, you put it on in the morning and walk through it but you don't rejoice in the gospel. You don't meditate in the gospel. You think you're the gospel. And you forget. You forget about what Christ has done. You know, another reason why people don't think the gospel is that great a news is because they really don't believe hell is real. They've convinced themselves that punishment, that consequences for sin is, is, is not really going to happen. God really won't do that. They, they, they've convinced themselves that sin isn't so bad. And, and some have adopted the modern philosophy that hell isn't real. It's not a real place. That when we die, we just cease to exist. And we believe that God is a God of love. And in any path that you take to get there, you'll just get there on your own. And, and, and they're not floored by the gospel. It means nothing to them because it's just one way of many. And so it's not good news to them. It's more like, that's, that's good for you but I'll, I'll, I'll do what I want. I'll get, how, I'll get there how I, how I want to get there. And so they're not, they're, they're not really a Christian. They're not even following Christ. There is only one way, the scriptures say, and it's only through Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you know, I say this often, you are welcome here. 
Anytime this door is open, you are welcome here to join us for worship. I'm glad you're here. But you are worse than you can imagine. If you're not in Jesus Christ, it is worse than you can believe. And, it, and you continue to sin. In fact, you're bound to sin, the Bible says. And you can't break free of sin on your own. You're actually blind to it. And you're bound and that sin flows through and, and, and seeks to control all of your desires. And, and ultimately, sin, sin brings death, not just annihilation. You won't cease to exist. No, the Scriptures say you will exist forever, but opposed and away from God. You'll live in everlasting torment, and that's hell, friends. See, the Scriptures also say that God came in the flesh. Jesus came to rescue you. He came to rescue me. I'm a rotten sinner. I don't know if that shocks you. My kids will say it. You hang on with me very long, you're going to realize I'm a rotten sinner too. I needed Christ to save me, to redeem me. He came for me. And he came for you, friend. To die for wrath that was due our sins. God's wrath towards sin. He can't be around sin. He's wrathful towards it. And because when we sin, we do more than just selfish things. You know, sin is really the failure to glorify God. That's what sin is. And we don't put it that way very often, do we? we when we ask what sin, we often say things like sin is things you, you do that you shouldn't do. There's things you, you say and you shouldn't say. And so when you become a Christian, you, th- you say, well, I don't do those things anymore. But sin is really a failure to glorify God. And that has more weight, doesn't it? I mean, are there things in your life where you can say, you know, when I do that or I say that, that doesn't glorify God? Do you think you should continue? See, friends, all of us were made to glorify God. That's why you're here on this planet. And you may work a fine job as a teacher or be a stay-at-home mom or you work in IT or you work for the union and all that is fine and well and good. But that's not why you exist. Continue to work those jobs, okay? Be, Be faithful in it, but that's not why you exist. You exist to glorify God. And the only way you can do that is to submit your life to him. See, only Christians glorify God. Only those who understand the gospel and submit their lives to God in repentance are the ones that can glorify God. And so if you're here and you have questions about this, you want to know more, please come find me or Pastor Chris or the other elders so we can walk you through this because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ alone. Today is the day to to turn in faith. And friends, to my Christians, it's you. It should be impossible for us to use the word gospel or to hear it or to hear the gospel and not burst out in in praise and thankfulness for what Christ has done. I mean, we're not going to be perfect in that. I understand that. But, But we should rejoice when we hear it because God saved us. And when we think about us, right, deep down inside of us, that God would save us, I mean, that floors me, that God would save me. And we should reflect on that too. This is literally the best news in the world. 
We're, if we are made to glorify him, then he will be at the center of our lives and he will be at the center of our decisions and how we raise our kids and how we work our jobs and how we are neighbors and how we will attend church and, and worship together. And he will be in everything and in all. That is what the gospel is and that's how we should reflect it. And then Paul says in verse two that the gospel was also promised beforehand in the Old Testament. This gospel that Paul is talking about is not some Johnny-come-lately story that, uh, of just now this is brand new. No, this has been written down for hundreds of years and Christ came to fulfill these hopes. This is why we have a thick Bible and not just a pocket-sized New Testament, okay? The, the stuff before Matthew is important. You should read that because it declares over and over again there is a hero coming to rescue us. That's the theme all throughout the Old Testament, pointing us forward from Genesis 3 of the fall all the way forward to Matthew. There is a hero coming to rescue us. And we learn from this that God is a promise-keeping God. The gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And the prophets that Paul's talking about here refers to the whole of the Old Testament, Paul is telling us that we learn about the gospel first in the Old Testament. That would be the scriptures that he would use when he was teaching, when he went town for town. It was the Old Testament. And in 2 Samuel 7, what Pastor Chris Chris read earlier, God promised David, Israel's great king, that he would establish an everlasting kingdom. And in doing this, he would fulfill the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12 about reversing the effects of the fall from Genesis 3. And this kingdom would be ruled by one of David's descendants who would also be God's son. And the description of this God's son is in Psalm 2. But as we come to the end of the Old Testament, we we don't see this promised one until we turn the pages into the New Testament and we hear about the promised one coming as a baby. That's the coming king and it all connects together. See, so much of the Messiah was revealed in the Old Testament Who would Jesus' mother be? A virgin. Of what house would he be? Of David. And where would he be born? In Bethlehem. And what name would be given him? Emmanuel. And what death would be his? The cross. The piercing the body without breaking the bones. And where? It was going to happen in Jerusalem, outside the city. See, all of that is in the Old Testament. Are you convinced you need to read the whole Bible? Trying to make sure all you say yes. All right. Read the whole thing, friends. It's, it's, it teaches you everything about who Christ is and why he came. And so Paul, his task was to root as far back to the Garden of Eden and the patriarchs and the prophets. He's preaching to them the Old Testament and seeing the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And according to the verse 3 and 4 here, his task was to preach Christ, that Christ was both human and divine. Verse 3 stretches, stresses Christ's humanity by avowing that he was descended from David according to the flesh. And the Greek here is meaning that the very, he's from the very seed of David, thus emphasizing his intense humanity. He was not play-acting. Jesus was a real man. But then verse 4 equally stresses his divinity. It says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit or his spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And see, Paul is wanting them to know that not only did the resurrection declare Christ's divinity, but it also substantiated the holiness of his human nature. One commentator, James Denny, 
put it this way. He says, the sonship, which also declared by the resurrection, corresponded to the spirit of holiness, which was the deepest reality in the person and life of Jesus. See, the resurrection showed the power of Christ's perfect life that came from being divine. And Paul wanted the Romans to know that his task in sharing the good news was to preach Jesus in accordance to the Old Testament scriptures, was that he was the resurrected divine and human Savior. Also, Paul says that Jesus was resurrected according to the spirit of holiness, which is a reference to the power of the Holy Spirit and the agent of resurrection. And later in Romans 8.11, Paul would write, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Christian. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so, this means that if you die on the way home this afternoon, Christian, you can go with the assurance that you'll be raised from the dead by the spirit of holiness just as Jesus Christ. He will do that. See, the resurrection means so much to us. It's life-changing. And the resurrection is so important that Paul opens the letter by mentioning it here right at the beginning. You see, he doesn't want to get over the empty tomb of our Lord. See, how can anyone beat sin and death? Friend, you can't beat sin and death on your own, only through Christ Jesus. You have a greater chance at beating Michael Jordan at one-on-one than beating sin and death. Seriously. Only in Christ can you beat sin and death. Only in him. And this is the gospel of God. It's, it's his gospel. And so we don't alter it anyway. We don't change it. It's the messages come from God and we are merely here to pass it on to others. And this should be a huge encouragement to us in our evangelism in the world. You don't have to, to take it and polish it or concoct it some different way. Friends, you just unleash it. The power is in the gospel We must be faithful in preaching it and sharing it. And we allow God to bring the fruit. He's the one that saves. And if people are offended, and they will most likely be, they are ultimately offended by God and his call, his command upon their life. And they should take up their offense with him because it's his message and it's not ours. We also need to realize, too, that that the gospel demands a response. See, Paul preached in the midst of, of the temple area in Acts 17, and he said this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God really doesn't invite people to repent. He commands people to repent. That's what the scriptures say. It's a summons to come. A summons is something that a refusal is not an option. A refusal comes with death. The gospel is both a declaration of Jesus' perfect rule and a command to come under that perfect rule, to recognize him as your Lord. 
If you have never submitted to him as Lord over your life, then you haven't submitted yourself to him. It's not an additional step, friends. It's what it means to be a Christian. You know, back in the 80s, 90s, the whole lordship nonsense, it was just nonsense. When you're a Christian, he's Lord of your life. That's how it is. Now, you might grow in understanding of that. Absolutely, we're all being sanctified. But friends, from the very moment that Christ sets you free, he is your Lord. We do not decide to take him as Lord. It is him as Lord who purchases us out of the slave market of sin and liberates us, and we belong to him alone. You know, what we realize is if you, if you read the Bible carefully enough is that you're really never free. Think about this. We were once slaves to sin and servants of Satan, and then when Christ redeems us, we become slaves to him and service to him, which is amazing. It really is amazing, friends. I give myself to him, and he has won me. He has captivated me, all of me, and I'm lost in him. And I lovingly and joyfully and willingly submit my life fully to him and my service to him. And I'm more free than I can ever imagine. You know, it's like a fish in water. You think you see a fish struggling to get up the stream, and as a child, you might pick it up and say, I'm going to save this fish, and I put it on the land. What happens to the fish? So you think you're trying to, to free it, but it's free there in the water where it's meant to be. And when you're in Jesus Christ, you are more free than you've ever understood it. He is your Lord, and you love to serve him. You love to do what he says, and you will serve in a way to bring him most glory. And so, friends, you haven't, we haven't really shared the gospel to someone unless we call for repentance and submission to God. You know, we talked about this. We've talked about it for years. The, the four points, God, man, Christ, response. It's really just a good anchor point if we talk about the gospel, who God is, who we are as man, what Christ has done, and then response. And, and I'm, I'm human too, friends. And I've shared the gospel and I chicken out sometimes, believe it or not, because I'm afraid to get to that response. But the gospel demands a response. Are you going to trust in Christ or not? And, and, and I want to encourage you, the gospel is offensive because you're telling someone the direction they're going is wrong. You've got to go this way. And if it's a man in his car with no maps, he doesn't want to hear that, right? We don't want to get directions. We don't want to be told we're doing something wrong. The gospel tells us to go to the other direction, to follow him. The good news is that we've lived our own way and we're utterly opposed to God against him and his commands. And we do, we do an about face. We're commanded to go and follow him and submit to him. And, and unless the spirit opens the eyes and heart of the one that we're sharing with, they will be offended. They will hate this message. The gospel is radical and so it will radically affect our lives. And so we need to call for people to make a decision to follow Christ. And then Paul says in verse 5, this is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. See the obedience there. It's right there, a response. To obey Christ and to trust in Christ is to live in obedience to him. All obedience flows from faith. And true faith always results in obedience to him. 
Paul later will argue in chapter 6 and chapter 8 that the grace given in Christ always involves a transformation of one's life. The obedience of faith means to, to bow the knee and trusting submission to Jesus as our Lord at the start of faith in life in Him and throughout our life. We do not believe and then obey. No, we obey by believing in Jesus Christ. This is what salvation looks like. When we, we give up trying to establish our own righteous standing before God and surrender our everything to him, we obey him in faith. And, and an ongoing obedience to him is the outworking of salvation. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, this verse ever stumped you, where Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's just what he's saying here. The obedience of faith is working out our salvation as we follow him. And he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is why James says in chapter 2, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If we say you're a Christian, there's going to be some identifiable fruit in our lives. And our works, our actual obedience to him is life-giving breath that gives life into what would otherwise be a dead faith. See, when faith is the root, obedience is the fruit. When faith is the root, obedience is the fruit. Charles Spurgeon said, faith which refuses to obey the commands of the Savior is mere pretense and will never save the soul. And so the obedience of faith is the initial and ongoing surrender of our lives to our Lord. So let me ask, do you have an obedient posture in your life? How you live your life, is it an obedient posture? I mean, are you easily prone to obey those who have authority over you or do you naturally want to just buck against authority and squirm any time or institutions say you should do something? Now, I'm not saying we should do everything everyone says. Don't, don't misread that. Don't take it down the trail. I'm saying is your posture in your life, your natural posture, one of obedience. If not, if your natural posture is always, I'm going to push against and I'm not going to obey, then when you come to the Bible and read what God commands of you, it'll make things really difficult. See, the posture of your life is one of continual refusal to obey. Then what makes you think you'll obey God when he asks you to obey? We need to seriously consider that when we read the scriptures. See, chances are, if your life is one that's built up with, I'm going to live my own way, that goes against following Christ. So think through the posture of your life. Christians obey Christ no matter the cost. We follow what his word says. And sometimes it's not the first time. Usually it's not the first time. Usually it's after a, a time of thinking through and meditating on the word of God, but ultimately Christians obey. So for the gospel in our area, but also last, and this is a much briefer point, for, for Rome and all the world. Number three, in Rome and all the world. He says at the end of verse five, among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, from our, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God calls people into himself. 
the, the, the call of repentance is a command to come and follow him. God commands people to come to Christ in faith and repentance. And it's as crucial for us to understand. This isn't an option. This isn't one of many in the world. There are no other options. This is it. When he calls, we are to come. And as Christians, we're actually called, called out ones. In fact, the Greek word for the church in the New Testament is ekklesia, which literally means called out. That's what it means to be the church. So the church then, by its very nature, are those who are called out. Those who are called out from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God. To be a member of a church, of our church, is to have responded to this call of the gospel. And then he uses this word of description for them as saints. That means holy ones here. They're not holy in and of themselves, but they're made holy because they've been called out and set apart from the world. And then grace and peace comes through the word of Christ. See, Christianity not only changes who you are, it changes who you are for. As Christians, we're now saints. You're saints. You're holy ones, created to follow him. You're created for the purpose of holiness. You're created to become the image of God. You're created to walk in righteousness. And being a Christian changes everything that you are. It changes the whole purpose of your existence. See, the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes us. We're made new because of Jesus Christ. We are loved by God. We are saints. We are objects of his grace and unending favor. And his peace is ours forever. Forever, friends. And this is something worthy to preach. This is the best news in the world. So has preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel lost its importance? Have we grown weary of sharing the gospel because we don't see any fruit? Friend, I'll admit, it has been difficult sometimes to not see fruit. And I can easily turn my mind and my, my eyes to other things, other metrics, but I just need to wait on the Lord to see fruit. And this story really encourages me. I want to encourage you. Uh, on my shelves are a few books by a Puritan, John Flavel. He was an English Puritan who ministered primarily in Dar- Dartmouth, England, and introduction of his book, The Mystery of Providence, which is a, a fantastic book. The commentator, before the book starts, is speaking of Flavel's life. And he writes this, Even a brief glance at Flavel's history gives us some indication of his outstanding character, of his influence, Wood, the royalist historian, observes that he had more disciples than either John Owen or Richard Baxter, and he longed for the conversion of souls. In addition to the incidents recorded in his own writings, there are some remarkable examples of effects of Flavel's ministry. One in particular was that of Luke Short. No relation to Chris Short. I don't think. Luke Short was a farmer in New England who lived to his 100th birthday, in exceptional vigor, but without ever having sought peace with God. One day, as a hundred-year-old man, he sat in his fields, reflected upon his long life, and he recalled a sermon he heard in Dartmouth as a 15-year-old boy before he sailed to America. 
The horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon him as he meditated on the words that he had heard so long ago that he was converted to Christ that very day. Eighty-five years after hearing John Flavel preach. Eighty-five years. John Flavel was in the ground. He was with Christ. And the gospel still had power enough to save 85 years later. Friends, there are many things to waste your life on on earth, but sharing the gospel isn't one of them. Don't you want to share something that's that powerful? Don't you want to spend your life on something that can transform a life 85 years later? There's no other message, no other good news in this world that is more powerful that can regenerate and convert a person 85 years later. I know some of you have really good jobs, but I'm here to tell you I have the best job. I really do. Y'all should be jealous. I get to tell people how they can go live with God. But see, here's the key. You can get out of that too. I don't want to do it all by myself. I'm not going to hoard it. You can have that job also. They have the privilege to tell people how they can have a relationship with the God of the universe. See, those stories for me keep me going. So may we emulate Paul, a servant, a set apart for the gospel of God. Your, your sharing of the gospel to a spouse or to a child that you have shared over and over. Friend, the power is not in your words. And you may, you may be in the ground 50 years before you see the fruit of the gospel that you preach so faithfully to your family and to your friends. And can I tell you, it's still worth it because you'll rejoice together in heaven. That's the power of the gospel. That we can call out and have the fervor of John Harper and tell others to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And then we can have the faithful ministry of John Flavel to faithfully preach this gospel that saves. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I ask that you would make us gospel gossips in this world. May we leave this place determined to glory in your gospel and dispense it freely. Give us boldness, God, we pray. Give us grace. Give us endurance. And we pray for fruit. We pray and rely on you to bring fruit from our work. We know that you're the one who saves. It isn't us. It is in our words. It's the power of the gospel. And so may you bring fruit from this message, I pray. For Jesus' glory alone, 
Amen.